You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Much of what we have learned about eating and overeating has been discovered in the last 10 years. Do you have trouble keeping your leptins straight from your ghrelins? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Howard Eisenson, the Program Director of the Duke Diet and Fitness Center. A graduate of Duke University Medical School, he's an assistant professor there and chief of its obesity treatment division in the Department of Community and Family Medicine. Howard, what can you teach us about the science of appetite in eating? I think perhaps what has struck me the most is that it's it's a complex problem. There are so many different gut-derived and neuronal-derived hormones and chemical messengers that have an influence on our, our eating behavior and our weight regulation that it's difficult to, to intervene with them. For instance, what's often seen in laboratory settings is if you interfere with one pathway that works to promote eating, then gradually over time, other pathways are upregulated to take its place. It, it appears that we evolved with fairly robust mechanisms to help us survive periods of food scarcity but we don't seem to have evolved mechanisms to protect us from what I assume is a relatively recent evolutionary problem, which is eating ourselves to death or overeating, certainly. So we're biologically programmed to not starve, and obesity is just a byproduct of that. Now, in terms of the biology of this, can you help us? What comes more from the brain and from the hypothalamus versus the endocrine system? I don't think we can be that precise. But there are so many important regulators here. For instance, leptin is a hormone that is produced in, in multiple tissues, prominently in fat cells. And higher levels of leptin do tend to curb eating behavior. And when leptin was discovered back in the 90s, it was thought that maybe this was going to be the answer. So-called fat gene, the leptin-producing gene, might be the answer. What we've learned since then, unfortunately, is that people who are truly leptin-deficient who don't produce enough of that hormone that tends to curb eating are very rare indeed. And most folks who are overweight actually have a lot of circulating leptin. They probably have some relative resistance to it. And giving these people exogenous leptin doesn't solve the problem, unfortunately. There's many other hormones that are at play here, the melanocortins, the neuropeptide Y, the erexins, Ghrelin, some of these names will be familiar to people. Ghrelin is interesting. That's a a hormone produced in the gut that acts to stimulate appetite. And interestingly, it's been noted that when people are losing weight through non-surgical means, through a dietary plan, for instance, they reach a certain point where the body upregulates ghrelin production, produces more ghrelin, presumably to stimulate the individual to eat more and regain some of the lost weight. For some reason that apparently is not understood in folks who've had, for instance, gastric bypass surgery, that compensatory rise in the ghrelin level does not seem to occur, or at least doesn't occur to the same degree. Now, what about the relationship between leptin and neuropeptide Y? Well, I'm not sure how the two of them interact. Neuropeptide Y is an appetite stimulant that that stimulates eating by acting on the, I think it's the ventromedial portion of the hypothalamus and leptin actually tends to curb appetite. So there's, to some extent, an antagonism between those two, but I don't know directly how they interact with each other. Now, how does insulin fit into all of this? 
It certainly fits into the puzzle somewhere. So many folks who suffer from obesity are also hyperinsulinemic. Something about fat cell activity seems to produce insulin resistance, probably production of a number of things, including inflammatory mediators. As a consequence, insulin levels go up to overcome the resistance and commonly coexists with obesity, sometimes leading, of course, to to prediabetes and metabolic syndrome or even to overt diabetes. And we do find that some of the agents that help uh, improve insulin sensitivity may also help us with weight management, but that's a complicated web as well. So how do you know when to prescribe those types of meds and, and what would you use? At this point, I'm not prescribing insulin sensitizing agents for weight control. There's some interest in looking at that. I mean, there are people looking at using metformin, glucophage, for instance, as a weight control agent, but that hasn't made its way into the medical mainstream yet. It's still reserved for use for treatment of diabetes principally and perhaps for uh, polycystic ovaries. There's also uh, interest in looking at uh, exenatide and also at, at amylin analogs, which are, again, approved for treatment of diabetes, but are in the clinical trials showing some weight loss benefits as well. This may become available to us for weight control, but we're not quite there yet. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. Howard Eisenson. We are discussing the science of obesity. Dr. Eisenson, is there a fat gene? There may be, but we haven't identified it yet, to my awareness. People talk about the fact that there's probably a few hundred genes that play a role in weight regulation. And for most folks, the problem probably derives from the interaction of multiple genes. I wish we had a fat gene per se. We thought we might have had one when leptin was discovered some years ago. But today we think it's a more complex problem than that. So what do twin studies tell us when you have people reared apart from their biological family in terms of what's environmental and what's genetic in obesity? Twin studies have shown that the genetics are indeed important, that there is a high concordance in the weight between identical twins, even if they're reared in very different different settings. And so we're able to say today that probably somewhere on the order of 30 to 70 percent of the variability among people in terms of degree of body fatness is attributable to genetic or, or biological factors. Anything else that's on the horizon in terms of the science of obesity research? I think it's going to be a, a real challenge to come up with an effective wonder drug, certainly, for obesity treatment. As I mentioned before, there's so many pathways involved, and if you, if you interfere with one, another one may step in and take over. I think we may see combination therapies similar to what has evolved in the treatment of hypertension or of diabetes that look at multiple points in the physiology and may have some synergy among them. But I don't know when we'll have that. And frankly, I would have expected some synergies between cybutramine or Meridia, the appetite suppressant, and Orlistat or Zenical. But in what little research I'm aware of that actually looked at that, they didn't have a synergistic effect using two drugs at once. So on the medications horizon, I don't see anything very, very promising in the near term. I'm hoping that concerns about Ramonabant, about that new endocannabinoid blocker that recently did not pass FDA review, 
Uh, I'm hoping those concerns will be addressed satisfactorily, and that will become another therapy for us to use, but but that, too, won't be a miracle drug. Let's talk about that for a minute. I think many physicians aren't aware, since it isn't available in this country, but it it is available in Europe. What are endocannabinoid receptors? These are receptors on the brain uh, that respond to naturally produced hormones, and I guess they've been called endocannabinoids because they... uh, They mimic the action of marijuana, for instance, cannabis. And marijuana may have the effect on many users of stimulating appetite, for instance, giving people uh, so-called munchies. And it's been discovered that if you block the the cell receptors that the cannabis is acting on, you can uh, curb cravings for sugar and for fats. You also curb craving for nicotine. Drugs have been elaborated that will have this blocking effect The leading one is Ramonabant, and uh, it has been approved in Europe after a couple of large trials in humans that showed reasonable effectiveness on weight and on components of the metabolic syndrome. What they saw was improvements in triglyceride levels, elevation of HDL levels, improved uh, insulin responsiveness, a loss of belly fat and visceral fat, all of which is positive. So there was a great deal of enthusiasm about the uh, pending arrival of Ramonabant on the scene. It was, in fact, approved in Europe about a year ago, has been in use for some time there, but the FDA has taken several close look at, looks at this and has decided they don't have enough data yet to allow the manufacturer to go forward with distribution in the U.S. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. Howard Eisenson, We are discussing the science of obesity. Now, in the past, there was excitement about some of the opiate receptor antagonists maybe helping, especially things like binge eating disorder. What's up with that? Is there any place for naltrexone in the treatment of obesity? It doesn't appear to be very promising. You know, we, we certainly are looking for that, and I periodically review the literature to see who's got what promising tool for the treatment of binge eating or for what people sometimes will describe as obsessive overeating. And folks have looked at SSRIs, they've looked at uh, opioid antagonists, but nothing has shown enough benefit that we can be enthusiastic about uh, embracing them now. We still do sometimes try things like SSRIs, but I haven't been that impressed in most patients. Darn, no magic pill. Then you'd be out of a job, though, right? So maybe not a terrible thing. Now, appetite suppressants, other than, than Meridia, is there a place for, for the older ones? You know, the older appetite suppressants, many of them are still available, but they're really only approved for short-term use. Typically, we take that to mean approval for use for two to three months at a time. And I think, for instance, Phentermine would be one product. It's fairly well known because that was one half of the famed Fen-Fen combination, fentermine and fluoramine. But I, I generally don't use them because this is a, a chronic problem, and it, we're looking at, for most people, fairly long-term use. And since Cybutramine is approved for long-term use, I think it just makes more sense to use that product. But there are physicians prescribing these other agents, and if they're monitoring their patients carefully and the patients are aware that the use is, is off-label, that may be a reasonable thing. Yeah, I still have patients come in asking for FenFen, <laughs> despite all of the publicity and the risks. It's, uh, you know, there is definitely a level of desperation out there. Oh, there is. It can be a heartbreaking problem. It's, 
it's tough. It's tough for the practitioners. It's tough for the patients. And it's difficult, I think, at times for practitioners to feel hopeful in the face of this. One of the things that I've found helpful for me is to realize how important the team approach can be. We don't have to do it all. We might be the captain of the team or the, the coach or the quarterback, but I think it's very important for practitioners to identify a good nutritionist, a fitness professional, perhaps a physical therapist, a psychologist, or other behavioral health professional with an interest in this area, and to utilize a team approach. No no one of us can do all this by ourselves. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, it certainly is overwhelming, and I would think that the risk of burnout is huge. So uh, sharing that risk is always a good idea. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Eisenson. We've been discussing the science of obesity with the program director of the Duke Diet and Fitness Center. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. 